0: Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm joined today by Margaret Cullen. Margaret is a licensed psychotherapist and was one of the first 10 people to become a certified mindfulness based stress reduction teacher. For over 25 years, she has pioneered secular contemplative programs for various populations, including physicians, nurses, cancer patients, military spouses, college students, clinicians, and educators. She has developed and taught contemplative interventions for research studies at Stanford, UCSF, Portland State, Penn State, University of Michigan, and the University of Miami. In 2010, Margaret was invited by Tupten Jimpa, the principal English translator to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, to contribute to the development of the compassion cultivation training at Stanford and going on to become founding faculty for the Compassion Institute. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the Meta Hour,
1: Margaret. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Sharon. Thank you for inviting me. It's wonderful to connect with you through the airwaves. So where are you
0: recording from today?
1: I'm recording from very dry Berkeley, California.
0: In contrast to very wet East Coast. Right. (laughs) Um, and I was so uh intrigued. I was just talking to somebody about all those years ago when John Kepittson started um the Center for Mindfulness and it was in the basement of uh that you know building in Worcester and how I would go just because Worcester and Barry are not that far apart and I think what's he up to, you know, over there. So it's quite something to have been one of the first 10 people to become a certified MBSR teacher.
1: It was so fortunate and so serendipitous that that happened. I often think of a quote I heard, I'm pretty sure from you, and I've repeated it numerous times. Let me see if I got this right, Sharon. When you asked... Um, uh, Trimpa, mm-hmm. who you should study with in India. Mm-hmm. I think he said, "Follow the pretense of accident." You got it totally right. Yay! <laughs> so I've that really was how MBsR happened for me, and um, my work teaching um, has all been that experience of serendipity and accident. So how did you first encounter the practice? Meditation practice? Well, I went on a retreat with you and Jack and Joseph, and I'm trying to think my first experience mm-hmm. meditating was on a 10-day retreat in Yucca Valley with you. Mm-hmm. I think it was 1979. I, Could I it be. <laughs> you know, it was. It was a long time ago. I'd never meditated before, and I had it a deep instinct that it was what I needed. And I had been quite charmed because my boyfriend at the time had gone on a retreat with you with his best friend, and they were the two most unlikely people (laughs) in the universe to meditate. And I was really fascinated, and I was also suffering a lot. so. Uh, You know, it felt like destiny. Mm. And was it
0: affirmed to you in that first experience that uh, this was a path that you wanted to pursue?
1: Absolutely. And it was the first time in my life. So I was in my late 20s at that point. You know, like for a lot of people that I actually felt at home both in my skin and in the universe, a lot of things suddenly fell into place and began making sense for me. And it became the organizing principle of my life, you know, really from that retreat on. And how did you encounter MBSR? It's a funny story. I was um, doing an internship for my uh, clinical license at uh, the cancer, it was called the Wellness Community in Santa Monica. And I had been a meditator. I guess people knew it was a personal thing, um, a private thing, but it had come up there. So the head of the Cancer Support Community said, Somebody wants to teach this program, MBSR, to cancer patients. We're not sure about it. We hear that you meditate. We'll pay you to take the class mm. and check it out and see if it's appropriate for us. So that was the first serendipity. Mm-hmm. So I, I took one of the first classes that was offered on the West Coast, I think, Um and I knew immediately that not only was it right for the cancer patients I was working with, but that I was really interested in it myself.
0: So fantastic! Now I know in those days, like John himself and the people around him, and certainly John, you know, as an individual, anyway, it was like uh, living and breathing compassion. It's just like so deep in the fiber of his being, but formal compassion training was not a part of that curriculum and um wondering how that evolution happened for you as well.
1: Yes, um it's very true. I was lucky enough to have John as a mentor uh through one long very challenging uh, research study and he really did embody compassion. And compassion was deeply embedded in MBSR, mm-hmm. um, but not articulated. Mm-hmm. Um, it was implicit, not explicit. And I was teaching MBSR, and I guess I had already developed, yeah, I had developed Mindfulness-Based Emotional Balance, another program um, based on MBSR, when uh, Jimpa invited me to work with him on the Compassion Cultivation Training. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was really because of Jimpa that I agreed, Mm -hmm. um, because it was an unusual opportunity to, I think he invited me because of my work with MBSR to kind of be someone who knows something about translating Buddhist concepts into secular language to help him to do something similar with compassion training that John did with mindfulness.
0: I think you're you know totally correct. it's like so implicit and not necessarily explicit in any mindfulness training. and I kind of watch these days as people sometimes struggle because the word mindfulness, can sound so cold and clinical just on the face of it. And so people are, are, you know, tying it to like warm mindfulness or kind mindfulness or kindfulness or something like that, trying to, to bring out the fact that, yeah, it's really in there.
1: Yeah. I mean, this has been of interest to me forever, quite honestly, The first research study that I worked on was Cultivating Emotional Balance, and I co-taught that with Alan Wallace, Mm -hmm. and I noticed very quickly that Alan and I used the word mindfulness quite differently,
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I
1: became really fascinated by it and read and wrote and convened some conversations and um, interviews about it. Because clearly mindfulness, as I understood it, as I learned it from you and Jack and Joseph, mm-hmm. and definitely as John uh, conceptualized it for MBSR, mm-hmm. f- was a wholesome uh, quality of mind that had within it the four immeasurables. Mm-hmm potentially, depending on the context, you know, they'd be kind of surfaced more depending on what was in the environment. But Alan used the term as something really neutral, as a neutral state of mind that was more about recalling and remembering and Mm -hmm. a kind of more narrow definition of mindfulness. And I think a lot of the debate about MBSR and mindfulness in general uh, comes from those very different understandings of what mm-hmm. the word is pointing to.
0: Yeah, because I think in, in that um, sort of more uh, common use in Tibetan practice, which of course Alan would represent, um, it, it's almost more like adverting attention. It's like when you realize your mind has wandered while you come back, you know, And uh, so you're recalling what your intention was for that hour, which was to be with your breath or your mantra or something. Um, But as the word was used in more Burmese context, um, which is how I began my practice, it it would be more like um, a relational quality. Like, how are you with that sensation? Are you adding grasping, aversion, delusion, or can you be with that sensation that's arising predominantly um, in a way that uh, leads to insight, to learning. And we can't, we can't be approaching that sort of relationship without some, at least, you know, a measure of kindness toward ourselves because otherwise we're just judging right away. I
1: shouldn't be feeling this, you know, something like that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly that. And, In some ways, it's a subtle understanding, um, and certainly MBSR, because it grew so wildly, Mm -hmm. ended up being taught by a lot of people with different understandings of of what the heart of it really was. Um, So it got really tricky, I think, Mm -hmm. in a way. I I think those of us who had the benefit of working closely with John— really saw MBSR as a a kind of Dharma practice, not relaxation, not strength Mm -hmm. reduction, not mic mindfulness, but really a path of liberation.
0: I'm very curious about the term emotional balance because, um, balance, uh, is the translation of the um, term in in Buddhist psychology for equanimity. And I've often said that I didn't used to like the word balance. I thought it meant the same as like blandness or (laughs) mediocrity. And it was only over time that I came to appreciate how everything can be born of balance. And so uh, maybe you can say something about that work.
1: Sure. Yes. Um it is a tricky word, you know, and as you know well, it can sound so bland and it can sound indifferent when in fact it's pointing to something quite uh poignant and quite exquisite and tender. Um, but the word balance doesn't really hold that. And that language fails in some way to communicate what it means to kind of rest with an open heart with all the joys and sorrows that we encounter as human beings. That's a really different kind of balance than a, a, a separation from an indifference, uh, a kind of blandness, as you said, that balance often implies. Um, so yeah, I, 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 the, the word balance really came from the original research study, which was cultivating emotional balance. What I talked about earlier with Alan, um, we did that study at UCSF and it came out of that meeting, uh, on destructive emotions mm-hmm. the mind and life meeting that was recently commemorated. I think it was 20 years ago, um, mind and life commemorated it recently. Um, so that program was, is still, um, shamatha based. And again, through the pretense of accident, I was invited to create a mindfulness based version of that program.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, And in fact, Eve Ekman and I are talking about maybe bringing them back together after all these years. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, it's really bringing emotion training and more of a focus on emotion into MBSR Mm -hmm. is what MBEB is. Um, Emotion... It's interesting because there's no real equivalent for it in Mm -hmm. Pali, right? Or in Sanskrit, Mm -hmm. it's been a little bit difficult to include it in a lot of Buddhist practices. You know, it's put, as you know, in the third foundation of mindfulness, Mm -hmm. but it's actually in the body, right? Emotions are not, Mm -hmm. they live Mm -hmm. in the body. So it gets really confusing where to put it. In Buddhist philosophy, so it's a it's a modern bridging of Western psychology and Buddhist philosophy. I would say, bringing a focus on emotion to mindfulness.
0: Well, everything in Buddhist philosophy is tricky because everything is everything. You know, <laughs> like you could you could land emotion in the body and feeling states of you know pleasant, unpleasantness, and neutrality. That second foundation of mindfulness. It's certainly in the third, it's even in the fourth, you know, foundation of mindfulness in terms of uh, related emotions, you know, kind of clusters. And so uh, it's always a little bit of a hassle, but I think that work is great. And you are a curriculum developer, it sounds like, which is a really fascinating thing because, um, you know, to have an expression of, of some very fundamental truths about the mind and the heart and life, in a way that work for the people you know that are going to be listening, uh,
1: is is quite a delicate task. It's really the fun part, Sharon. I love it so much. The whole idea of you know, what does it mean? that there is no self, this ephemeral, lofty, hard to grasp concept that's central to Buddhist philosophy is pretty easy to taste when we just think about, you know, what's my sense of self when I'm suffering? What's my sense of self when I'm feeling joy? And to kind of go from there, what are the kind of really simple expressions of these fundamental ideas that we can all understand and easily grab a hold of? That really excites me. That's
0: really great. You also remind me of when the Buddha sent his first 60 disciples, the first 60 monks out to teach in the world, and he said, go forth for the good of the many, for the welfare and benefit of the many, um, and uh, some other very poetic things. And then he said, and go teach in the local idiom.
1: Oh, I love that. Thank you. Thank you. There are so many levels of that actually, because I've been involved in a teacher training with the compassion cultivation program for these 12 years. And, as we train teachers around the world, you know, just like MBSR, the curriculum has to be loose and flexible so that they can translate it into the idiom of their culture, Mm -hmm. their particular population. It really has to meet people where they are.
0: That's great. I'm wondering actually how you define the word compassion and whether that definition has changed over time for you as we've just been talking about our own idiom changes, you know, all the time. And, and is that sense of compassion different from self-compassion?
1: Mm. Yeah. I would say that my definition of compassion has definitely changed. I think my ideas about everything change all the time. <laughs> 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 um. And it's been wonderful to kind of marinate and immerse myself in in compassion over the last 12 years, to teach the course, to teach teachers to teach it. So just to have the luxury of thinking about it a lot and practicing it a lot. Um, and in a way, I struggle with simple definitions with the kind of reducing it, um, because there are so many facets and angles we could look at it from. Um, But I guess I would start out by saying that compassion is meeting suffering with care and love, um, perhaps as the, the kind of simplest idea. Uh, around around compassion. Um, it provides a way to kind of stay with the truth of suffering um, without collapsing into fear or withdrawing or becoming overwhelmed with the suffering. Um, and in that way, I think it... It ennobles both the suffering and the person who's feeling compassion. There's something ennobling. It's a virtue in that way.
0: What do you think are the most common misconceptions people are holding about compassion?
1: I think there are quite a few. One is that compassion involves sacrifice. And um, there are different aspects of that that get people in trouble. Um, but I don't, not only does compassion not involve sacrifice, it's beneficial to us. Like all the four immeasurables, it's a wholesome state. And when we access it, we feel better. And it brings benefits. And the research is showing that. So one big misunderstanding is that there'll be a cost to me for compassion, for feeling it, for expressing it, for cultivating it. So I think that's a big misunderstanding. Um, and it's related to another misunderstanding that compassion is a zero sum game, that it's finite, that there's just so much of it to go around. And, you know, the extent to which I give it, I have less or I have less to give another person or that however it is you do that math. I think it's a big misunderstanding about compassion. There are others I could go on. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: one of my favorite topics if you want to go on. Well, I'm told that if you Google compassion, you know, Google will often give you certain suggestions. They think this must be what you're searching for because so many others have searched for it before you. And so I'm told that if you type in compassion, you pretty quickly get fatigue. Because you're looking for compassion fatigue as so many others have before. And, and so I wonder if you could say something about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's true. Um, I don't think, I think it's a misnomer. I don't think there is such a thing as compassion fatigue. Although I understand that it feels that way. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just want to digress for a minute and mm-hmm. say that I I also teach forgiveness. And one of the things that we do in forgiveness class is look at the difference between how we can understand intellectually things, but emotionally they feel true nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And compassion fatigue can feel real mm-hmm. to people. But I nonetheless think it's a misunderstanding and that what we want to do is kind of describe a different area that is actually compassion and that if we're feeling fatigued, something else is causing the fatigue other that gets conflated with compassion, Mm -hmm. like empathy. And there you know, Tanya Singer and Olga Klemecki's research is really helpful, I think, in showing different parts of the brain are involved in empathy and compassion. And that just feeling with suffering, which is empathy, mm-hmm. without connecting with the motivation to relieve the suffering, which is the ennobling part of compassion that gets fatiguing. And then the really tricky part of the compassion fatigue and collapse for providers and caregivers and people who are confronting suffering all the time is that to care about suffering doesn't mean you always have to solve it or you always can solve it. And that we can care and meet it with an open heart and connect with what I call the bigger-than-self sense of compassion without solving suffering.
0: Yeah, I was thinking uh, a lot about that last point, you know, in, in the context of that's one of the places I came to appreciate the word balance, <laughs> you know, that uh you know as we have compassion for someone else we may need it for ourselves as well there's a balance there and we certainly need a balance between equanimity or wisdom and compassion that maybe i will do everything that i can do and sadly enough i'm not in charge of the universe you know i can't i can't fix everything i can't solve it you know on on this timetable and and there needs to be kind of an awareness and and I think a big letting go with that so that we have better boundaries and,
1: and the compassion can flow more fully. Absolutely. Absolutely. The perspective equanimity brings so much perspective uh, around what's really possible in terms of my own uh, physical limitations. So, those two realities coexist in this very dynamic way that bound, uh, compassion is boundless and infinite. And I live in a limited body, you know, that I, I live in physical reality that experiences some limits. Um, I can access this quality of boundless compassion, but it's mediated through this limited physical body, limited in time and space, interacting in a world of very complex causes and conditions.
0: Indeed, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's wisdom right there. (laughs) Um, Another misunderstanding about compassion I often hear is that we can only care for others once we care for ourselves first and that it's a prerequisite almost. And then I think, well, then it becomes a project. Like, how do you know when it's enough, you know? Um, It seems to be there's got to be maybe both going forward. Like, what do you think about that?
1: I agree that it's a misunderstanding. And I think like anything, you know, you talked earlier about how all of, Buddhist philosophy, it's all interconnected and these overlapping mm-hmm. Venn diagrams that kind of made me crazy the more I looked at them, mm-hmm. like, ah, I can't separate anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the, this is a false binary and way too simplistic. Um, culturally, in our families and societies, most of us got a lot more training and skill around expressing compassion to others than to self. So generally speaking, most people are better at that. Mm-hmm. It's trained more. You know, we we do see in the research, and this is the whole kind of theoretical basis for everything I do, is that it's trainable. These things are natural, compassion, mindfulness, forgiveness, and they're trainable. It's a both And, And the training can be voluntary or involuntary. And um, compassion for others was involuntarily trained for most of us. So um, I think a lot of people are are just better at being compassionate for others than for themselves. And it's not not one or the other. Um, And I do think that often our capacity for compassion for others grows when we can hold ourselves compassionately. And likewise, I think the ways in which we're hard on ourselves is uh, is inextricably bound up with how we're hard on others. So I think they're both true, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But I think people can be very, very... Um, uh, what's the word, miserly with self-compassion and genuinely generous with others. I've seen that. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And I do, at the same time, think they enhance each other potentially.
0: You mentioned uh, the benefits of compassion, as evidenced in research, can you say what some of those benefits are, or what the
1: research entails? I know there's um, lower uh, depression, higher sense of well-being, relationships are infected, affected rather, all of the things you would naturally expect to come out of compassion, and I think the interesting part of research from Tanya Singer's lab and I think Richie Davidson found similar results, but I haven't looked at this research in a long time, is that it is a different part of the brain that gets um, engaged with compassion Mm -hmm. than uh, other more kind of stressful mental states So it allows us, there's some protective function it brings to our brains, therefore our bodies, they're all connected when we turn towards suffering. And in that sense, I often talk about it as a superpower, actually, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it it provides this like superpower cape of... um, strength of confidence it allows us to fully meet suffering the reality of suffering in the world without doing harm to ourselves and harm comes from you know being in a chronic state of stress or arousal which just empathy can do and certainly all the other places we can go in response to suffering, worry, fear, agitation, it can turn into anger. It can, you know, suffering that isn't met, that doesn't kind of trigger compassion can turn into hatred and violence and just all sorts of things. So in that way, it really is a superpower.
0: Beautifully put, because I mean, just look at our time. You know, and, and uh how extraordinarily difficult this past year as one example has been for many people and um and so many people, you know, just feel overwhelmed and and yet there's some thread I think of acknowledging the the difficulties we're facing caring about ourselves, caring about others, in which, for one thing, we don't feel so alone. It really gives us a, a sense of being part of a, a bigger whole, and that in itself is a big relief.
1: It definitely is. Um, and so much of the formal compassion practice, just like the loving-kindness practice, which, you know, you have shared with so many people in the world actively engages our imagination to connect with others in the world, even when we're sitting alone in kind of pandemic quarantine um, or all the isolation uh, that many of us have felt over the past year and a half.
0: There's something about compassion too, like since a part of what it rests on is an awareness of suffering, as suffering, you know, so I've often said, like if we're looking at our own greed or fear or um, hatred, those states we don't really like that much, generally speaking, Um, and we don't call them bad or wrong or terrible, but we see them as states of suffering, then that gives us some idea of the shift. And just as we are, With ourselves, we can use that kind of lens when we look at others and to see a world where we're moving towards suffering or we're moving toward freedom in in every moment.
1: Yes. Yeah. And um, one of the foundational concepts for extending compassion to others is recognizing our shared common humanity. And it is really the antidote to tribalism. It's the antidote to all the ways that we habitually judge others. And it's really seeing, choosing to kind of see through the glasses of our shared common humanity. And one dimension of that is that we all suffer. And that suffering is often the foundation of unskillful behavior. And I love, um, I use this a lot in my teaching. I studied for a number of years with Marshall Rosenberg, who Mm -hmm. had a huge impact on me personally. And something he said, he said a lot of things that live inside of me, just like you and Joseph and Jack. Um, And one of the things that Marshall said is that, We can understand all of unskillful behavior as a tragic expression of an unmet need Mm -hmm. or a tragic expression of suffering. And, you know, that's a compassionate lens. That gives rise to compassionate seeing.
0: Marshall Rosenberg, we should say, was the founder of Nonviolent Communication. Um, and it's a really fascinating system where, uh, we sort of do compassion out loud, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's almost like verbal compassion and it's using kind of language as a way to train a compassionate view. So interesting. I
0: want to go back to something that you said now and that you said earlier about training, that these qualities are trainable because surprisingly to me, that was also a kind of revolutionary statement, you know, and, uh, you know, just taking compassion. I felt like what I was hearing from people was, was more a sense that it was more like a gift and you either had it or you didn't. And if you didn't, you were out of luck. And the idea that it was trainable, that we could cultivate this somehow was unpalatable, often in many cases. But I think, certainly from the Buddhist point of view or the Asian point of view, absolutely these qualities are trainable because they are born out of how we're paying attention. You know, if you are in conversation with somebody and you're not listening and you're just distracted there's not going to be much of a sense of connection or, as you say, shared humanity, common humanity. So we're not laying the ground for compassion to arise. And so we know that attention is completely trainable because that's what meditation is. So um, you, you sort of made a point of saying these are trainable. So I wondered
1: if you'd had a similar experience to me. Absolutely. No question about it. I mean, I'm kind of, I joke around in MBEB, you know, I'm not an expert on much. Probably one of the things I got most expert at through all my years of sitting in silence was anger. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm really good at anger, and anger was my default, and I got to know it really well. And um, it really boggles my mind, How much, you know, even kind of the drudgery of doing these practices when they're not juicy and Mm -hmm. it doesn't, you're not struck with the grace of a compassionate moment that, you know, and the heart doesn't open, that it really does begin to shift your baseline. Your default, my default has shifted, my views have shifted. And it's stunning to me. You know, anger was a very important defense for me as a child and growing up. And it's how I felt strong, it's how I protected myself in the world. Um, so, yeah, I do credit this training. And of course, for me, that baseline shifting may not Look particularly wonderful to other people, but I know how much that has changed um, from where I was and and
0: uh, you know, uh, it was also interesting to me when you said that training is either voluntary or involuntary. <laughs> I, I thought of like coerced mindfulness training that didn't seem like it would work, but you know, we are taught a worldview. We're taught what matters. we're taught certainly as children, you know, we're inculcated in um, what strength is, what happiness is, how alone we are, whether we can count on others. You know, these things are also highly conditioned and and sort of loosening the grip of some of those ideas and, and things we've been taught seems very important to have a a life of some real freedom.
1: Absolutely. And I think... One of the interesting things about these secular programs that we get to do that's a little different from, you know, all the training that I got on retreat mm-hmm. is really explore misconceptions and invite people to kind of challenge ideas to surface uh misconceptions that are often living below the threshold of awareness about what things are and conceptually challenging has a lot of power, kind of redefining Mm -hmm. surfacing misconceptions and then challenging them. has a lot of power.
0: One of the other misconceptions that I find in teaching love and kindness or compassion um, is that so many people feel that the cultivation of these qualities, if even possible, but say they believe it's possible, that the cultivation of them kind of limits you in terms of how you might respond to life, you know, that you have to smile all the time, or you know, just be nice, or or something like that. And and I think, um, you know, I've I've put a lot of time into trying to separate or, or make distinctions between the heart space of compassion and the actions we might take in a particular moment in time, based on discernment or what seems to us to be the most skillful way to respond, which might be kind of intense, you know, or fierce or, or saying no or something like that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I know you talked to Kristen Neff. Mm -hmm. I love the idea of fierce compassion or what Byron Katie calls a beautiful no. I think there are (laughs) a lot of, a lot of different ways to frame that, that, do um, challenge some deep misconceptions. And as I've thought about it, actually even just in this conversation with you, I think some of these misconceptions in a very subtle way are defenses against the rawness of compassion. And I'm going to see if I can put this into words One way that we defend against living with an open heart is assuming the posture of compassion rather than feeling compassion. Mm. And, you know, for 30 years, I facilitated support groups with cancer patients Mm. as a therapist. And one of the things that we would do with interns, an expression we had that I really loved was notice when they made sad eyes, you know, a lot of suffering came up in these groups Mm -hmm. and often our response is a posture, which is the sad eyes, which in some way kind of look a little like pity and that's a whole other thing that we can talk about than your enemy of compassion. Mm -hmm. And it's also a posture and it's a way it it actually buffers us from the person and their feelings, and it feels bad to them. It's almost like phony compassion. Mm-hmm. And real compassion doesn't often have that facial expression. And this came up, actually, I went to one of the Mind and Life meetings in Dharamsala, and Mm -hmm. it was the one on neuroplasticity. And this conversation came up about, with the Dalai Lama, does compassion have a facial expression? And it's been debated, about whether it does or it doesn't. And I don't think the Dalai Lama thought that it had a facial expression, as I recall. Um, But this is a long way around of saying it can look very, very different, different from our ideas about, oh, it's soft and sad eyes and your head is down and it's kind of tilted and there's a kind of, (laughs) you know, you're just like, collapsing. Oh, oh, that's terrible. Oh, oh dear. That's like the really common idea of what compassion looks like, right? But that is not really an expression of, of compassion in the moment. It's not what the other person needs. Usually they don't want us to collapse into pity. That's like the last thing they want. They want somebody to meet us and be there and look and, you know, not kind of collapse into our suffering, Mm -hmm. which I think often happens. That's, you know, so compassion can actually have a face that's strong. And as you said, even more than that, it can be about setting limits because we all know that we can say yes when actually what everybody needs is a no. Um, It's not the best thing for the other person or for me. It's not an expression of genuine love. It takes more courage sometimes to stand in the truth of that no. No. You know, out of compassion, out of deepest love, no. And to figure out how to do that without... Anger or without kind of pity or backpedaling um, is another way of describing this thing of compassion that many of us walk around with a kind of just slightly off kilter idea about what it is actually.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, this is really fascinating. I'm going to do a lot of reflecting on, first of all, was Paul Ekman at the meeting when you were trying to decide if compassion had a facial expression? Um, yeah, I,
1: I, I wish I could. I I remember parts of that conversation. I'll have to look back at yeah. it too. Um, but I know, um, you know, there was the d- big d- debate because Paul Ekman didn't see it as an emotion and yeah, Donald right. does at, you know, Berkeley, and he did quite a lot of interesting work to kind of talk about compassion as an emotion. So that's a whole other thing is kind of how we define it in psychology.
0: Yeah. Because I was thinking of if you define it as an emotion, then other emotions maybe do have a face. And and does that mean compassion is more vast, you know, and and kind of limitless if it doesn't have a particular face? But uh, anyway, that's that's another kind of reflection. But in yeah. terms of what you were just saying, which is so vitally important, I think maybe especially for the populations that you've been working with, who are caregiving communities—the physicians, the nurses, the clinicians, the educators—and um, who do face unique challenges in terms of the sorrow, you know, and and overwhelm. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit. But what drew you to those populations and and those unique challenges?
1: Well, I think the pretense of accident was at play here, too, Mm -hmm. because I was invited to work on a lot of research studies. And um, believe it or not, my very first work with cancer patients was because I was working on one of the first research studies using psychedelics and uh end stage cancer patients and i needed uh some experience working with that population and then when i went on to work with other uh researchers they always wanted to work with high stress populations you know for obvious reasons around the data and the changes that they would see. So I ended up, educators were chosen for CEB. You know, it was kind of between educators and nurses. Um, So it was really driven by a lot of the research studies that I ended up working with these populations.
0: And I think the message that, you know, is so vital is really that one uh, about balance and about, not falling into sorrow because then we're just undone, you know, as human beings in our personal lives and in the efforts that we're trying to make to make a difference, you know, they cease as well.
1: Yes. And I think if I could, I'd like to add one other misconception Mm -hmm. that I think really helps us to find balance and perspective. And that is, that we have to perfect ourselves to perfect our compassion. Mm -hmm. And um, caregivers, you know, educators, doctors, all of these groups that I've worked with are so idealistic and kind. And you can imagine people who end up in my classes who are choosing to Mm -hmm. do compassion training, they are already really kind and we joked a little bit earlier about how it would be hard to do um, a kind of involuntary mm-hmm. mindfulness, right? But we can inflict compassion on ourselves. We can inflict it. We, it can become a cudgel. It can become like another way we're not good enough, another way that we're striving Mm-hmm. another way that it's postponed until we get better. And one of the concepts that's helpful to a lot of my students that I want to share with your audience is that compassion, we can connect with a bigger than self compassion. Mm-hmm. that, In some way, you know, a 40% Whatever years of meditation, okay, I'm a little less angry, that's good, but I'm still really neurotic and I still have a very complex, limited personality. And if I depend on Margaret and my personality, I can't get that far. But if I open to the idea that I'm connecting with a greater than Margaret compassion that's a force in the universe that is immeasurable and boundless, and I don't have to perfect Margaret in order to access it. That feels so much easier to me.-hmm Because it's also right now, <laughs> potentially. It's rather available. Than, yeah. yeah, it's always available. It's always there and it's boundless. And so part of what we're doing is figuring out, like, how do I get there? How do I access it more readily?
0: That's so lovely. So tell me about Compassion Core.
1: Compassion Core? Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you for asking. Um, Compassion Core is one of my passions right now. Compassion Core is an idea that I developed at the Compassion Institute And I've been carrying on on my own for the last year and a half that very simply gives grants to certified teachers of any evidence-based compassion program like CCT, Compassion Cultivation Training, or CBCT at Emory, Mm -hmm. Compassion-Based Cognitive Training, or Kristen and Chris Germer's program, Mindful Self-Compassion. It gives them grants to offer programs free of charge to communities of need. And um, I decided after the pandemic, and a lot of my work just vanished, um, that I would dedicate my income to support Compassion Corps grants. Mm. And um, it's been really a tremendous source of joy to me. Um, People have done work around the world with a huge variety of communities. And one of my goals that may not be quite obvious is to support these teachers who are already idealistic so that they don't have to do just their philanthropy to give classes away, that they can actually be paid to offer programs for free And for my students to know that they're supporting these programs when they take my classes Mm -hmm. so that there can be a virtuous cycle of compassion growing in the world.
0: Wow. Well, thank you for all the work that you're doing and um, thank you for that work, um, really most particularly right now. And so to end our conversation today, I would love for you to leave us in a guided practice or reflection of some kind.
1: I'd be delighted to do that. And I talked a little bit about bigger than self-compassion. And I think that all religions have figured out that in order to access this kind of compassion, it helps to use our imagination and to use symbol's of kindness and compassion and love and wisdom uh, to get there. So I'd like to guide you in a brief uh, meditation that comes from Tibetan Buddhism. That's been used very successfully by Paul Gilbert in compassion focused therapy, and we use it also in CCT, and it's called a compassionate image practice. So this will be a short practice, and it'll involve a little bit of visualization. And I'd just like to suggest before we begin that for those people who don't visualize easily, it's fine to just get a felt sense, to let it unfold in whatever way is natural for you. So let's begin... um, By finding a comfortable posture that supports relaxation, alertness, and stillness, whatever that might be. And take a couple of deep and diaphragmatic breaths. And after the next out-breath, releasing any control of the breathing, letting it find its own natural pace, and locating sensations of the breath and the body wherever they're most obvious to you. perhaps setting an intention to meet this experience for the next few minutes with an open heart and mind to trust what arises. And now bringing to mind, in whatever way is comfortable for you, so it might be a felt sense, it might be a word or a picture, someone, some being who represents wisdom and compassion, See what comes to mind without a lot of editing or striving for the perfect image. It could be, if you're fortunate enough, a grandparent or a friend, a teacher, a religious image of the Buddha or Jesus, might be your dog. For some people, an image from nature might feel more comfortable to them. A magnificent tree. A place in nature where you go to feel comfort connection and ease. One of my students used a comfortable old couch that she brought from home to home. So whatever comes to mind for you, see if you can put yourself in some way in the experience with that being, sitting in the presence of this lovely tree, this inspiring teacher, this kind friend or family member and notice how you feel in their presence. Get a sense if you can, a visceral sense of how it feels to be seen fully and loved. That somehow they see your aspirations, your shortcomings, your confusion. And all of it is held in kindness with unconditional goodwill. Wanting the best for you. Not because you're special, because you are, because you simply are. What is it like to be held with unconditional goodwill? Nothing to prove, nothing to perfect, Or apologize for. See if you can relax into this field of kindness. And then coming back to the breath, and in the last moment or two of this practice, of this brief practice, reflecting on how you felt, on anything that shifted for you. and on the reality that whatever you experienced came from you. It is within you. You can access it anytime. That you actually can offer yourself this experience. And you can offer it to others. And in closing, I hope that this brief practice and our time together, Sharon, may be of benefit.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today to learn more about Margaret's work. You can visit her website at margaretcullen.com. It's M-A-R-G-A-R-E-T-C-U-L-L-E-N.com. Big thank you to all, all our listeners out there. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.